Last week in Acts chapter 4, we saw the first Christian persecution for the healing of the lame man and for the speaking in the temple precincts and the commotion that it caused. The apostles, Peter and John, were arrested. They were detained overnight. And the next day, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, gave an eloquent defense of the name of Jesus of Nazareth as the reason for the healing. But beyond that, right, Peter declared that Jesus is the stone rejected by the Jewish builders. Right, you might see that the psalm we just sang is Psalm 118, has this text in it. Jesus is the stone rejected by the builders and now raised. Christ is the cornerstone of a new temple of God, a new building in the Spirit. It's provocative and it's combustible stuff. And if that were not clear enough, Peter said of Jesus... Again, this is all in last week's text, that he is the exclusive and the universal source of salvation. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name, that's the exclusivity, no other name under heaven, that's the universality, no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So that's what happened last week, and this morning we're going to continue to look at that same encounter between these apostles and the temple authorities. So we'll make two points. They're there in your bulletin. Uh, Debate and dismissal. So first, there's a debate. And by this, we mean the debate the council, the Sanhedrin, has with itself. So we're in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John. The word for boldness here could be translated courage, but it speaks of a sort of confident freedom of speech. It's the only kind of freedom of speech the church needs is this kind, that the Spirit gives. And by the way, this freedom of speech cannot be encroached upon by any state authority. This is the freedom that the Spirit has wrought. They have to cut your tongue out to take this freedom of speech away, which, of course, some regimes are willing to do. So even though it was short, Peter's speech, which we looked at last week, was dense. It was theologically rich. He took a messianic psalm, Psalm 118, and he applied it to this current moment. He was filled with the Spirit and he gave utterance as Jesus had promised. And so there was something like striking, like something unexpected in this defense, and the authorities took notice. This is not the way fishermen normally talk. They saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived, the text says, that they were uneducated. Which doesn't mean that they were illiterate or that they were unintelligent. It just means they were unschooled. They had no formal rabbinical training in theology like someone like Paul did. They didn't have that kind of background. They were common men, the text says. In our parlance, maybe laymen, if you will. 
And yet, yet they didn't speak that way. And the authorities were struck by this. They're astonished. And we're told they recognized that they, that Peter and John, had been with Jesus. Because the ordeal with Jesus was just seven or eight weeks ago. They're like, oh, these are the same, these are the guys who ran away. When they were with Jesus, they didn't exactly cover themselves with glory. But at the same time, we know that being with Jesus, right, is akin to, a, a, like, it's a, better than a three-year seminary-level education. So it was not long ago that they had put Jesus to death. And they figured, we put an end to this threat now. And now there's men who they recognize as his disciples in his circle And they're continuing to create these disturbances, same kind of disturbances that Jesus created, proclaiming that he's raised from the dead. So think if you're on this court, right? You must be thinking, this Jesus, he continues to be a problem, even after we've executed him. So they recognize these men as having been with Jesus. And Jesus also was an uneducated, formally uneducated, and common man. Right, without public theological authorization. Without rabbinical teaching status conferred by the powers that be. He went through a similar ordeal when he stood in the same temple. Right, basically in this, on the same dirt. And he taught in the middle of the Feast of Booths. This is back in John's Gospel, chapter 7. The Jews there, the crowds and the authorities, marveled. They marveled. And they said this. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Of course, we know the answer to this. There's a human side to this answer. You can see it when Jesus appears in the temple in Luke's gospel when he's 12 years old. Jesus studied the Torah. Jesus did the human work. He grew. At the same time, his teaching authority came because he was God the eternal Son, and the Word, and the image of the Father. So the disciples were with this one. And not only were they with Jesus, they had been filled with the Spirit. So Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, equips the church to speak. He equips his saints to bear witness with boldness, with depth, and with clarity. And the authorities here They don't only note it, they're astonished by it. And we're told in the text that the man who had been healed, remember, this is what this is about, he was standing right there besides the apostles. Now, you talk about an inconvenient truth. That's a witness they don't want to interview right there. And so they had nothing to say in opposition. They, they could not deny it, and they would not acknowledge it. <laughs> this is a terrible, beloved, and embarrassing place to be. Right? When you're so backed into a corner that no data will cause you to reconsider your position. So, like, reality itself is mocking their conviction. But for them, full steam ahead. Forget about the facts. So their, their power, their social status depends on them being right. So there's the healed man. 
And these uneducated upstarts claim that it's done in the name of this risen Jesus. And here's how they hear it, right? They hear it as, like, like, that's preposterous. We're Sadducees. There isn't a resurrection. Much less are there resurrected beings going around healing people. We refuse to consider that. But we obviously can't deny the healing. So what's to be done? Well, they dismiss the apostles and they have a conference. A damage control conference. What shall we do with these men, they say. Again, the agenda is never the truth. The agenda is handling the disturbance. Minimizing the damage. And so you get this sort of, on the one hand, on the other hand, kind of deliberation here. They state the obvious. They say this. No one denies this in the story, that a notable sign has been performed through them. Notice that. They let something slip here. The through them. That's quite an admission. Yeah, it looks like these guys had something to do with the healing of this lame man. That a notable sign has been performed, that it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and it says there, and we cannot deny it. As if, if we could deny it, we would. But we can't. Again, they won't acknowledge it, they can't deny it. There's a lot this can teach us, I think, but one of, one of the things it teaches is that we're naive if we think that contrary evidence, radical contrary evidence, even miracles, can convince people who are hardened into their system. I had a professor who told a story once. I know some of you know it. He told a story where he said there was a man who was convinced he was dead. Right? He was thoroughly convinced he's dead. He goes to his psychiatrist. The psychiatrist interviews and examines him and says, yes, this guy thinks he's dead. So the psychiatrist does not know how to convince him that he's alive. So the psychiatrist comes up with this idea that he's going to take a, he takes a pin and he sticks it. Well, he asks the man first. He says, do dead men bleed? And the man says, no, dead men don't bleed. Their heart stops pumping. They don't bleed. And he says, fine, give me your finger. He pricks the guy's finger and he bleeds. And the guy says, what do you know? Dead men do bleed. <laughs> right? So, so, so he has two beliefs, right? He has a belief that I'm dead and the belief that dead men don't bleed. If you show him he, he bleeds, he doesn't give up the belief that he's dead. He changes the other belief. And people do this all the time. That's why we walk around frustrated thinking, I can't believe in the face of all that evidence, that person could still believe this. Always remember the dead men do bleed story. You can always change other beliefs to protect the beliefs that are most precious to you even in the face of miracles. People do it all the time. So here with the council, right, it, they may have begun, it may have begun as a noble concern for the truth, but it becomes an instinct for self-preservation, and thus they continue, as they continue in this pattern, it becomes a means of suppression. Right? That, that's a frightening thing, right? We start with a noble concern for the truth. We lock ourselves into the truth in some narrow, brit you know, brittle, rigid way. 
Then we do everything we can to preserve that brittle system. Then we end up suppressing other viewpoints and contrary data, and the system is locked in forever. As if there's only one right answer to every question, as if there's no ambiguity in our systems, no elasticity in them. They say this, the Sanhedrin, but in order that this, this sect, may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more. So they, they impose a ban, no more speaking in this name. So that's the internal debate. So I want to look secondly at the dismissal. This is uh, verse 18. So they call them, they charge them. It appears to be solemn legal admonition. They charge them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Now notice, nobody in these stories ever questions that they have this position of authority. They do have this position of authority. The apostles don't think their, their authority is illegitimate. So they charge them, don't speak anymore in this name. When Luke narrates and summarizes, he speaks of the name of Jesus. When he has them, when he quotes them, they just say this name. It's as if they're afraid or allergic to actually saying Jesus. So don't speak anymore in this name. And then Peter and John respond again. And it's quite a vigorous reply, right? It's marked by that same Holy Spirit-inspired boldness that astonished the council. And this is very cleverly phrased. They ask the council which has judged them to render a judgment. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. You want to judge something? Judge this question. Do we obey you or do we obey God? There's a question for you to render a decision on. Right now, of course, this would be galling to the council to phrase it this way. They would just see it as begging the question, right? The apostles, they would say, you're just assuming you're on the side of God, and then you've just pitted that against our admonition, right? It's like when you're having a debate about a Bible passage with your friend, and, you'll say, and, you, and you jokingly say, I'd like to believe what you do, but I'm just going to follow the word of God here, <laughs> right? Kind of cuts off all debate and discussion. You put yourself on the side of the angels. That's what it sounds like, hey, do we have to obey you, or should we obey God? Why don't you let us know? But guess what? Peter would say, yeah, that's right. Because we've, what it means to embrace the name of Jesus, the stone which you've rejected, who's now the cornerstone, to follow him, to witness to his resurrection, to proclaim his gospel, is to listen to God, which you have just forbidden. So, yes. We are not begging the question here. You have forced the issue. The two positions can't be embraced. They're incompatible. You want us to listen to you, the text says, rather than God. Right? There's no middle ground between these positions. There's no way to negotiate a compromise. And so they basically put the council on notice that it's not going to happen. Right? It's like giving the court notice that you're not going to obey the law. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You have made an impossible demand. So, think of this. They're saying we are the chosen eyewitnesses of Christ's life. We saw his life. We saw his passion and death. We saw his resurrection. That's what an apostle is, an authorized witness. Which is why scripture, the apostolic scriptures are so precious to us. And the form of that witness is primarily speech, bold proclamation, preaching and teaching Christ and his gospel. 
Right? We are not authorized to speak about everything. We're not even authorized to speak about most things. There's so much Christian bloviating about everything under the sun. I heard a very, I saw a very well-known preacher give a sermon yesterday where it was about <clears throat> some theme out in the culture. What it wasn't about was the actual text. What we're authorized to proclaim is the text and the gospel. We have been given, Jesus says, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which means we have not been given the key to every single issue among the kingdoms of the earth. And on this front, then, on this front, we cannot and we will not be muzzled. We have a unique message for the world. We cannot, notice that in verse 20, not we will not in verse 20, but it's we cannot. We do not have the option not to speak. We are not authorized to submit to your authority on this matter. We're under compulsion. What are we under compulsion to do? We are under obligation, Paul says. Woe is us if we do not preach the gospel. Right? We cannot but speak. So there it is. The gauntlet is thrown down. Now, these are lawful authorities. Remember that Jesus actually says in the Gospels, they sit in the chair of Moses, so do what they say. And the Bible everywhere teaches us reverence and obedience should be given to them. It's part of the moral law. It's an extension of the fifth commandment to honor one's parents. To honor all lawful authorities that God has placed us under. And in addition to this, the express teaching of Holy Scripture in numerous places charges us to that, right? Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. The teaching of the New Testament places us in a posture of deference to the authorities. And this deference is wide. It's the default position of Christians. We are not taught to obey only when the state makes wise laws, right? Or when the laws they make are backed by the appropriate peer-reviewed studies. Or when the laws are not irksome or inconvenient. Or when we don't like the symbolism of the laws. Nevertheless, there are limits. And here we see a plain one. No authority can command what God forbids. This is a key part. It's just a pillar, but it's a key pillar in getting the Christian view of civil disobedience correct. The basic framework is as follows. There are two, and only two cases, where we may disobey lawful authorities. First, as here in our text, when they forbid what God commands. When they forbid what God commands, God commands the apostles to preach the gospel. The council forbids it. Peter and John say respectfully but firmly, we're not going to abide by the edict. And second, and the flip side of this, is when the authorities command what God forbids. When they forbid what God commands, when they command what God forbids. Take the situation that we saw in the Old Testament lesson with the Hebrew midwives. They're commanded by the regime to kill all the male children, and they refuse. If the state commands what God forbids, it must be disobeyed. 
its commands are not just. So this isn't everything, but it's the important start, right? If the state forbids what God commands, you cannot preach the gospel. If the state commands what God forbids, you must kill these children. It must be disobeyed. Now, this won't solve every problem, right? There are, there are boundary cases, there are complexities and other nuances. We saw some of those during the pandemic. But this at least gives you the frame. It gives, it'll solve most of the problems, actually. It may not solve every problem, but it'll solve 80 or 90% of them. So this much is clear. The authorities set in order by God are limited. If it's a question of obeying God or man, we must obey God. The matter is crystal clear here. They are not going to comply. So, what does the council do? Verse 21, they've already threatened them. So here's their their response to the apostles saying, we're not going to obey you. They're going to threaten them again. This seems like desperation at this point. We charge them. They declare that they're not going to abide by the charge. Let's threaten them some more. And then they let them go. They dismiss them. Finding, the text says, no way to punish them. They were looking for a way to punish them. They couldn't find one. This is what they were seeking. When you're sure you're right, you just stop hearing this dissenting data. This elephant in the room, that that healed lame man standing right there. Because in the, right, their, their system is frozen. Their mind is locked down on it. There's no self-examination. There's just defense mechanisms, and that's how the court's operating. They couldn't punish them because of the people. They wanted to punish them, but they couldn't. They're in the same position that they were in when they asked Jesus about his authority to do what he was doing. We read that in the gospel lesson. So here, as it was with Jesus, they can't get the result they want. Right? The sentiments of the masses are against them. I mean, what a, what, a spiritual, what a spiritual indictment to not be able, at the very least here, to join in giving thanks to God for this remarkable sign. Even if you question, let's say you question the credentials. You question the orthodoxy of the ones who perform the sign. You still can't rejoice in the guy's healing. But I mean, I think we can imagine how this happens lest we get too haughty. It's not a dynamic any of us are immune to. It's an all-too-human dynamic. First, we view ourselves as the keepers of orthodoxy and the guardians of the flame. That's always the first sign. You've got some defender of the flag who's convinced they've got the purest form of Christianity under the sun. And then we see some fringe group, some upstart, unordained sect, and we start to view them with deep suspicion. Maybe there's some remarkable signs or done by them or some blessing on them. Like I mentioned before, maybe God decides in the 20th century to sweep 150 million people into the kingdom of God through Pentecostal Christianity. What kind of reform God would do that? <laughs> it's not the way I would do it. And we can easily conclude those are, maybe those are lying signs. Maybe those are demonic wonders. Who knows? Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So this dynamic is not unknown in our circles. As I've said before, I will say it here again. 
Almost all of us would have sided with this counsel against Jesus in the trial. If you think, you know, without any ambiguity, that you'd be on the side of the apostles and not the side of the council, I think you may not know. The side of the council is the side of the tradition, the authority, the lawful side, the conservative side, the side that wants to uphold the law, the side that wants order. It's against the side of the upstart, marginalized, unauthorized people. A couple of you were honest enough to come up to me once one time after I said this and said, you know, it's scary, but I think you're right. I think at the trial of Jesus, I would have taken the wrong side. We're all on the wrong side theologically at the trial of Jesus, so it's okay to say that. We would take the wrong side here, probably. And here's the antidote. Humility. Poverty of spirit. A recognition that we see through a glass darkly. Of course, it doesn't mean we can't cultivate strong convictions. We can. We can do that. We must do that. But it does mean that we recognize where we are. This is so important, right? We are not yet in the land of light where all is perfectly clear, where all the shadows are banished. And you know what this means? All our theological systems need to be open. Open. We recognize they're partial. They're broken. They need to be malleable. They can't be too brittle. They have to be open to correction from the outside, from above, from the new light of the spirit, from new data, from healed lame man standing right in front of you. We need to realize that our systems of thought, and this is a a, a real uh, temptation, a human temptation, our systems of thought are not mini replicas of the theology of God's own mind. You know, there is a a fantastic distinction in classical Christian theology between archetypal theology and ectypal theology. You know, an archetype is like a, a, a... pattern or a prototype or a source, right? And an ectype is a reflection of it. Archetypal theology is the theology of God's own mind. It's God's theology. It's God's eternal knowledge of himself and his being, which he has because he's God, in one eternal act of intuition and self-knowing. It's perfect, flawless, completely illuminated, perfectly architected theology. And all human theology is ectypal theology. It means it's refracted, it's creaturely, it's partial, it's impure, it's broken at points. But in our circles, there's lots of people who think that their theology is just a mini replica of the theology of God's own mind. But if you lose track of this distinction, then you can get frozen. In this case... In the case of the council, it means that they should genuinely be open to the claims of Jesus as raised from the dead and as the Davidic Messiah. That's what's at stake here yet. And there's no evidence that one side of the conversation is even listening, is even interested in having that conversation. Right? He's the one who's the name behind this healing. He's the maker of a new temple. It's a kind, now, now think about it. The kind of openness of change that we're asking the Sanhedrin to have here is the kind that most of us don't have. We are not open to this. Right? People are scared of restructuring their theology. 
And so notice this, another thing to notice. They take no action to disprove the resurrection. They don't seem interested in either explaining the body's disappearance or in producing the body. They offer no counter-explanations. Why? Why do you think this is? They're lazy? No. They're Sadducees. It's not part of their system. They can't assimilate it. They're not restructuring around this idea. It's an absurd idea to them. If you're open, I think, if you're a thinking, sentient being, right, there's going to be stuff you believe today that 15 or 20 years ago you thought was pretty nutty. Right? You heard it, you first heard it, and you're like, ah, I don't think so. And then later on, you're like, yeah, I think that's right. And then there'll be stuff that you believe today that you don't believe 15 years from now, at least I hope so. Otherwise, it's, it's like some sort of river that's frozen. So, with this scene, the long persecution of the church has begun, last week and this week, and it's not abated. Christians are seeking to be good citizens. We want to respect the authorities, right? We want to be faithful and submissive, but we know that only God deserves our absolute loyalty. We're citizens of another nation. We're seeking a different country. Any earthly country cannot lay claim to have total, absolute allegiance on us. We're citizens of another land. You know, there's a wonderful um, letter. You can read it online. It's called the Epistle to Diognetes. It's from like 130 A.D., so it reflects the the thinking of of the very, very earliest strand of the post-apostolic church. And it's a letter about Christians and how they engage the culture and their political stands. Some of it's very famous. I'll just read you a couple lines from it. He says of Christians, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. Right? If you don't have the sojourning mentality, then you know, maybe you think that the state's going to be perfect or something. Or like your home is the state. We, we expect states to do crazy things because we're seeking another country. So they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet they endure all things as if foreigners. This is the paradox of Christian citizenship. We do the same kinds of things other citizens do, but we do them as foreigners. And then the famous line is this one. Every foreign land is to them as their fatherland. Meaning a Christian can live anywhere, in any country. Any foreign land, scatter them around the world, they can live anywhere, that'll be their fatherland. And every fatherland is a foreign land. American Christians get the first half of that sentence right. We can live as a Christian anywhere. They don't get the second half right, which is wherever we live, it's a foreign land to us. Because we belong to another land. And this is part of what helps shape us knowing when it's time to obey God rather than men. It gives us the freedom and the liberty and the detachment. So this is what was costly to Jesus, this adherence to the divine order above all human laws and authorities, above all human attachments. And it will be very costly to the apostolic church. There's a breach here, by the way. It's a political breach, right, with the whole set of temple authorities, with their culture. And it's been costly to Christians down to this day. So the apostles win. If we have to use the word win, if we have to use that word, we can... We can say the apostles win this little skirmish, right? They get a dismissal. They were arrested. They were held overnight. They were tried. They get a dismissal. 
But we learn something important here about the form of winning or victory in this age. And Calvin gets this exactly right. On this text, he says this. So they conquer, he says, speaking of the apostles here, so they conquer. And yet they are triumphant only under the reproach of the cross. That's the key. They triumph. This is not a defeat. It's a triumph. But it's triumph only under the reproach of the cross. Being publicly reproached for speaking the gospel is not a defeat for us. It is a triumph. Being reproached for the way of the cross is a victory for the church. And this text reminds us of that. May it be so for all of us, because we are called to be witnesses, to speak and teach in the freedom and the boldness of the Spirit, with liberty of spirit, with liberty of speech, to teach and proclaim the risen name of Jesus. Amen.